Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. I trust that your time in the Word has been profitable, and I also trust that you have been looking to the Word as you seek to make sense of some of the major issues that we are facing in the world today, issues such as the conflict between Israel and Hamas, issues that, if you're in the United States, are are centered around um, illegal immigration into our country and the choosing of different uh, political candidates for the elections in 2024, There are a lot of things that are causing unrest and difficulty and challenge, and we need to make sure that we're looking back to the Scriptures and using the Scriptures as the foundation for how we understand the world around us. That's called, by the way, having a biblical worldview. Well, I want to get into our discussion today on the Christian's relationship to culture, and that is actually going to begin by defining what culture is, okay? I think it's very apparent to anybody listening that there are, a, there are numerous cultures, hundreds, uh, if not thousands of cultures, all around the face of the world today. And the question is, why do we have all these different cultures? Where did they all come from? And what is the prerogative for all of these different cultures to exist simultaneously with one another? As I sought to answer this question, I was searching the Scriptures, and I really had come all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And going back to Genesis chapter 1, I was was struck again as I read the verses in uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. Here's what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man, or God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every little living thing that moves on the earth. So if we're examining this particular passage of Scripture, we can see that there are three commands. One, a command to subdue the earth and to rule over it in the animal kingdom, a command to be fruitful and multiply, and a command to fill the earth. Now, what this will result in, if mankind was to purposefully do what God said, it would result in men exercising the divine prerogative to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle. It would result in them exercising that command in the region where they live. In other words, you wouldn't have one man ruling the entire earth or a group of men ruling the entire earth but you would have pockets and groups of men who, as they 
fulfilled the command by spreading out and procreating and exercising authority over the region where they lived, you would have all of these different diverse regions where men or groups of men were practicing the divine prerogative. For this reason, we can say, all right, if we're going to come up with a working definition of culture, we could say that a working definition of culture is this, the specific manner or the specific ways that a group of people exercise dominion in the region where they live. It comprises the laws, the social expectations, and the value systems of a particular group of people in that region. And I think that you can make this definition, you can understand this definition very easily from what we've witnessed in the divine mandate. God is expecting people to spread out and to fulfill this particular purpose that he established at creation. And, you know, in the one instance in the scriptures where they did not, where they did not fulfill this particular mandate, in the tower incident in Genesis chapter 11, when the people, after um, the flood, after the great flood, they traveled east and they built a city and a tower who, which was to go into heaven, God came down and inspected their work and he saw that they were unified in their thinking, they were unified in their purpose, they were unified in their creativity, they were unified in their desire and motivation to rule the world, and that was against his divine mandate. He did not want that to happen. He did not want mankind to have a centralized government that would rule the entire world. And so he confused their languages. And the effect of confusing the languages is that they all spread out. And then what happened? You have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different cultures that began to take root in all the different areas across the surface of the earth. This is exactly what God wanted. God wanted mankind to rule small regions and to exercise dominion over that region. And I think it's worth noting that um, when we look at the world today, we can see a great consolidation of power in human governments. Now, it's not wrong. Like, human governments are not wrong. They're not sinful. God established them, and we have a responsibility to respect them. But you can see now that the tendency... <clears throat> The tendency of sinful man is to consolidate power within a human government and then to try to expand the influence and the reach of that human government across the face of the earth. So a, a, a good example of this would be the, the British Empire of the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. There used to be a saying that the sun never set on the British Empire. Why was that? Because Britain, Great Britain, had conquered so many territories all the way around the world that there was always a place that was under the crown of England, under the authority of the crown of England, even though it was literally thousands of miles removed from the crown of England. See, I believe this is what God wanted to avoid. 
by separating everybody out with the tower incident, okay? Now, you, you may be saying, well, we'll look at, look at the consolidations of power that we have now. We have China is a consolidated power. We have the United States as a consolidated power. You have, you know, the European Union as a consolidated power. And um, all of these other countries that are large, they're all trying to get more power. They're trying to consolidate territory and land and influence and financial resources and all of these types of things. Do you know the reason why I started, or the reason why in lesson two or section two, I talked about the four different views of the end times and how that would affect your view of culture is because right now it seems to me that the entire earth is heading back towards a Babel incident, a Babel moment. The entire earth has a, sim a singular trade language. The entire earth um, has, at the present time, a singular financial dollar that they trade in, and it's the U.S. dollar. It's not the Great British Pound. It's not the, the euro or the Chinese yen or the Japanese yen or what I can't remember what the names of all those currencies are. But anyways, we have a consolidated currency. We have a consolidated language. And if you understand a premillennial dispensational view of the world, you know that the entire world is going to unite behind one leader who is known as the Antichrist. And so God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, dispersed the entire world thousands of years ago by confusing their language. But he has allowed the world in the last 100 to 200 years to reconsolidate together under a unified language, under a unified currency, and with a goal of having unified technology that can be used in various ways cross-culturally. So we're really moving away from regional cultural differences. And, and think about it. Culture, again, we defined it as the specific way that a group of people exercises dominion in the region where they live. But what do we find, let's just say, in the United States? We find power is centralized in Washington, D.C., and th those who are in Washington, D.C. make laws that govern people who live hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away. And those laws that govern those people who live hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away may not be the best laws for those people who live way over there. Though I'm not saying the United States is a bad country or a bad entity or that the idea of it is bad, I'm saying that the system, as it is right now, under its current formation, has been corrupted and is not functioning like the founders set up, and there is less power in your local region, and there is more power at the federal region. So we've really gone away from the biblical mandate. We've really gone away from, if you're in this particular region and you live with the people in that region, you need to make laws that govern that region appropriately for you, okay? And I'm not saying, of course, that people are sinless and they do a great job of it. No, people sin. They're sinners. Even, even 
the the best Christians, the most uh, mature Christians sin. But what I am saying is that because of the centralization of power, culture is no longer as unique or different as it was even 50 years ago in our country or 100 years ago in our country. Now, why is all this talk about defining culture important? Why does it, why does it really matter? Well, it matters because culture, the, the re, how you interact with other people and the creation in the region in which you live, how you interact is governed by God's mandate to you in Genesis chapter 1. You have a responsibility to exercise authority and dominion. You have a responsibility to steward the creation. And if you are being prohibited from practicing the best possible stewardship because of rules and regulations and laws that are coming from people who live hundreds or thousands of miles away from you, that inhibits your ability to perform the divine mandate. The individual Christian, therefore, should actually care about the culture that is being cultivated at a national level. That doesn't take away from the culture that should be cultivated at the state level or even, more importantly, at the local level. But we need to understand that the decisions that happen nationally affect your ability to be obedient to God in the local area in which you live. Now, the Apostle Paul himself recognized this, although he didn't put it quite in these terms, but here's what he wrote in the book of 1 Timothy. He said, first of all then, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Notice, Paul connects the individual Christian, the individual person, with the chief person who is an authority over the entire region. So, you know, he may have been writing to believers in Ephesus, okay, where Timothy was located at the time, and he was asking them to pray for the rulers who were over them. So you would have local rulers that you would pray for, but also the king that would be who lived in Rome at the time, hundreds of miles away from where they were located. Why do we pray for them, and what do we pray? Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if we pray for them, it's possible that they may become converted to Christianity, and then the perspective that they have as they make decisions that affect everybody who lives under their authority, their perspective will be altered. Their perspective will become biblical in nature instead of secular in nature. This, of course, leads to a question, what, what should a Christian do? Well, we certainly should pray, as Paul admonished us to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But Christians, I think, need to have a broader perspective on how they engage with the governing authorities in their culture. We need to have a, an understanding that we have collectively a responsibility to rule well in the region that we live, and this is according to God's divine mandate.
I think one of the problems that Christians have is they think, well, you know, issues of politics are separate from the church. We want to focus on the church, but these issues of politics, they're not important, and they're not significant to us. I think we need to change our perspective on that. We need to have the perspective that God has given mankind a mandate to rule, and it doesn't exclude Christians from being involved in the secular government. Christians should certainly be involved in ruling, let's just say, their household well. Nobody would argue against that. But Christians should also take interest in how their local regions are ruled. Are they being ruled according to the commands of God for the glory of God? Well, I don't know. We need to be aware of that. We need to think about that. We need to be mindful of that as we have the opportunity to make different decisions and to encourage uh, truths to happen or God's truths to be promoted in the society in which we live. And I can hear, you know, I can hear the objections right now. Well, the Christian's mission isn't to reform culture. The Christian's mission is to make disciples. Okay, I'll grant you that. The Christian's first mission is to make disciples. According to Matthew uh, 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says this, make disciples by going to all of the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Now, now let's think about this for a minute. Let's say that you go to a region, and you start to make disciples, and a, a let's just say half of the people in that region become saved. Let's, for the sake of numbers, use a thousand people. 500 of them become saved. What are those 500 people supposed to do all of a sudden? Are they supposed to just withdraw from every aspect of rule and authority that they have or had prior to their conversion? What if some of them were lawyers or judges or other political officers? Should they just stop doing those jobs because, well, now they're a Christian and they're working for a different king? No, I don't believe they should. I believe they should execute their job to the best of their ability according to a biblical worldview for the glory of God, and that is actually exercising dominion. And I wonder if it wouldn't be better for Christians who maybe have an interest in politics, who have an interest in the law, who have an interest in legal matters, if they wouldn't be better off, if our culture wouldn't be better off, if Christians who had a real worldview would pursue those particular uh, employment opportunities, right? When we got to understand that the culture is made up of the people who live in a particular region. And if they become Christians, then that particular region should begin to reflect a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, because the people of that region have had their minds transformed. They've put off the old man, and they are putting on the new man. They are daily dying to sin and daily being conformed to the image of Christ. So in our example that we cited, we could see if half of the people in a particular region become believers, you wouldn't expect them to just immediately withdraw from all of their 
responsibilities that they had prior to conversion, what you would expect is that they would then take their new worldview, the one that is based on the absolute truth of God's Word, and they would apply that in the particular job or capacity that they are already serving in. And the effect of this, I think, would be tr tremendous, right? You would, you would probably see reduced crime. You would probably see more, just, more justice being served because um, the judges and the lawyers would be interested in doing what is an objective standard of justice, not some kind of subjective standard of justice. Now, in this particular example, okay, we, we found a way to um, work out the potential conflict that there is, okay? And what is the potential conflict? The potential conflict is, well, the mission of the church is to make disciples. But what is the mission of the Christian? What is the responsibility of the Christian in the region in which he lives? As he lives among other people who may or may not be Christian, what is his particular responsibility? Again, this is where the tension comes in. And Christians have tried to answer this question in different ways throughout history. It's easy in the example I cited, when you have 50% of the population all of a sudden become Christian, then you have at least a 50-50 a split. And you may even get more than a 50-50 split because some of the people who are not Christians may agree with the moral perspectives and the, the justice and the ways of thinking that the Christians would introduce into that particular region. And this has been tried throughout history, okay? Um, very famously, John Calvin attempted to make the city of Geneva, Switzerland, a Christian city, okay? And the Puritans who came to North America, they viewed the colonization of this continent, the North American continent, as an opportunity to establish a city upon a hill that would make obedience to the gospel of Christ a central tenet in how they interacted with the world around them, all right? And so we have, um, we have examples throughout history of where Christians took this idea of we are going to exercise dominion over a culture, and they tried to basically choke out secular viewpoints by declaring that this particular region, this particular city, has this goal— which is to promote a biblical worldview, okay? This is one strategy that has been practiced throughout history. But there are, there are obviously other ways that Christians have engaged culture, or there are other ways that Christians have tried to reconcile these differences. One of them is basically non-action. Like, we're, we're separate. We're separatists, okay? Um, this would be like the Quakers, okay, and probably um, some ultra-fundamentalist Baptist groups. Maybe you could say the Amish and Mennonite groups of today, historically the Brethren. Um, these, these particular groups were separatists. They wanted to have their own separate communities. They did not want to engage the culture around them. And so by, being, by basically being their own separate community— that was their form of engagement. We are different than you. We are not like you. We don't want to be a part of you, uh, and so forth and so on. Okay? That is a, a second example of how Christians have tried to reconcile these two things. 
Our mission is the church. Our mission is the gospel. Jesus said that we should be in the world and not of the world, so therefore I'm not going to be like the world in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to be totally different. I'm going to be separate. Now, in reflecting on these, and if you know we were to really do a deep dive into the history, I'm not sure you could say that one of these is a better approach than the other. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure you could say that. I think I would tend to argue that I would prefer the John Calvin slash Puritan approach to the separatist approach, because I think that more people benefit from that approach. I think that when Christians are involved in the governing affairs of of a region, that it's a blessing and a benefit to everybody in that region. Whereas if Christians just manage their own little area and their own little region and they're separate, it's a blessing to them, but none of that general blessing spills over to those who are unbelievers. That's just my personal perspective on that. And, And you could disagree with that. That's fine. I guess my big contention is that the the average 21st century evangelical Christian thinks that the sum total and purpose of cultural engagement is to be winsome so that you can make the gospel attractive to the unbeliever. And, and I think that that's a far cry from what God really intended believers to do when it comes to exercising the biblical mandate. I think that's a far cry from that. I think the modern perspective of, look, politics is over here. We don't need to involve ourselves in politics. Legal matters are over there. We don't need to involve ourselves in legal matters. We're just going to be the church, and we're going to try to be our own little group and stick to our own um, circles, and we're not, we're going to, we just don't bother us, and we won't bother you too badly. You know, we'll innocuously pass out some tracks here and there. But we don't really have anything to say to the culture. We don't really have any opinions on how the culture should be managed. And I would say that this is probably a reaction, at least in the United States, to the strong uh, Christian coalition that was established in the early 80s and 1990s called the Moral Majority, where certain faith leaders partnered with certain political figures to try to enact a more biblical worldview upon the United States of America from a federal level. And while I don't, while I also don't um, disagree with their approach, I think the approach needs to start locally and then work upwards nationally, right? That's, that's the church. The church is a local body of people who take the gospel to their neighbors and the citizens in the region in which they live, and then some of them become converted. And then y- you can out of that group who have been converted, select the right individual, okay, the right individuals who might represent you in our form of government. And those people who absolutely have a worldview that's biblical can then go and be the representatives in the larger government. Um, I think that without the joint effort of the church preaching the gospel— and let's just say you have national political leaders who are pushing for a biblical worldview. If you have national biblical leaders pushing for a biblical worldview, but the church is not doing their job in the local community, um, you're going to have failure. If the church is doing their job in the local community, but the national 
There's nobody nationally who is interested in promoting a biblical worldview. Um, you're not going to have as much failure, but it's going to take a lot longer to get that message accomplished. And I think we should be concerned as Christians about how we can implement a biblical worldview into the laws and the social norms of the region in which we live. And we become overwhelmed when we look at doing that on a national level because, man, how do we change the direction of the United States? How do we change, how do we break into the national consciousness? And this is where we go back to Matthew 28. We break into the national consciousness one conversion at a time. One conversion at a time. It's interesting, um, just looking at the history of America, and you look at the Great Awakenings, or the different awakening periods, and you start with the, the First Great Awakening in um, the early 1700s, the mid-1700s, you know, and men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, um, even the, the Wesley brothers were involved in that in some capacity preaching in America. And you look at that and you say, wow, that really changed and transformed the American consciousness. But how did it do that? Because it started at the local level with the preaching of the gospel. But it had good effects, okay? So I think Christians need to be more conscientious that the way that they can transform the culture is through the preaching of the gospel and, alongside of that, compelling those who are believers to practice the truth of God in their, in their current um, spheres of influence, whether, you know, whatever job that might be, or maybe whether they're on a, whether they're a school teacher or they're on the school board or whatever it might be, Christians have to understand that we have a mandate to rule from God, and we need to seek avenues in which to practice that rule. Now, the Christian is not going to seek overthrowing the government in a violent manner. That's not how the Christian is going to do that. The Christian is going to do that through preaching the gospel, conversion, teaching them to, uh, teaching the new disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded, and then slowly over time, you could see the, you know, the region changed because the worldview changes, okay? But we can't just think that we have no responsibility to the culture at all. I think that's an incorrect thing to think. We need to understand that the divine command to rule and exercise authority applies to us as Christians just as much as it does to anybody else. Okay, so we must ask ourselves as Christians, how can I promote righteousness within the culture? How can I promote the practice of a biblical worldview within the culture? How can I honestly work towards the end that God has set before me? And and one of the things that I think really... Um, takes us away from this are the distractions of the age. We're so distracted by our social media accounts. We're so distracted by the entertainment that we have access to. We're so distracted by a lot of different things in life. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm just saying if we want to really have an opportunity to change the culture and to exercise the biblical mandate to rule, 
we need to be engaged in how can we make the culture reflect the righteousness of God. And, and that involves a lot of different, there's a lot of different aspects to that. You could become involved in the school board. You could become involved in politics in your local community or even maybe regionally or nationally if you're so skilled. But the church ought not to be afraid to, re, to demand that the culture reflect biblical values. The church ought not to be afraid to hold people accountable, especially Christians, to practicing a biblical worldview. And I think it starts with, honestly, pastors. Pastors have to do a better job of communicating these things to their people. Pastors of larger churches, you may have members of your congregation who are lawyers and judges. You should be challenging them to uphold a biblical worldview in their practices. Some pastors out there have politicians who are nationally known in their congregations. You should be challenging them to uphold a biblical worldview as they have the opportunity to represent the people and make decisions, directional decisions for the country. You also have a responsibility, pastors, to hold those people accountable for the sins that they do. You need to make sure that you're practicing the appropriate process of church discipline when necessary, because the church, first and foremost, needs to be pure. And secondly, the church needs to be prioritizing the communication of the truth, not trying to do a backhanded handshake with the culture or the secularists. The church needs to be prioritizing the truth and standing unapologetically on the Word of God. I think that as I wrap this particular lesson up, um, and this is the final lesson, this is the final uh, episode on the relationship of the Christian to culture, I think that we have to have an attitude of individual responsibility. It's my responsibility to do what I can in the place that God has put me to engage the culture with biblical truth and try to exercise the creation mandate upon the culture. That's my responsibility. I have to do that. I need to do something. And if every Christian would take the responsibility upon themselves, I think we would see some real transformation. We would see some real goals. But unfortunately, I think many people um, recognize the need for something to happen, but don't view themselves as part of the solution to, the, to making that thing happen, whatever that thing is. So let's do the best that we can, brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian right now listening to this, I would challenge you to get engaged in the culture of your household. Dads, be a godly leader in the household. Wives, be a good helpmate and a good example to your children. That's where we start this process, in the household. And then we go to the local church. Then we go to our community. And then we can take it even broader. I'm... I'm encouraged. Um, I personally was encouraged by this study, and I hope that you are encouraged by it and that your thinking has been challenged a bit to think about your relationship to the culture in a different way. God bless you, and may you continue to work hard to study the Word of God.